John, don't pretend like you're not interested in this chat. No, no, I'm just pretending I'm not interested in this chat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, after last week's disaster, yeah, it's fully charged. Wasn't a disaster. Nobody noticed. Oh, sorry. Is it that time already? (laughs) (laughs) This is why I wanted video of John. A black screen would be no use. What are you going to do with that video now? They can't see me, that's okay. (laughs) Welcome to Movie Scramble. I choose you as champion. Hello? Say my name so my powers may flow through you. But I don't know your name, sir. Shazam. Wait, for real? Say, okay! Shazam? And good evening all, and welcome back to the Movie Scramble podcast. I believe it's this episode six we're on already. It is, yep. How did that even happen? You know, this is a podcast I said it wouldn't last one episode, and now we're on six episodes. Absolutely fantastic. It's just a shame we've uh, not got an unbroken streak that we've all been on, but John, John's been oh. on every single podcast so far. He has the most IMDb credits, yep. Yes. John, how about you? <laughs> I'm very well um, in sunny Aberdeen today for a wee change and it's all very nice up here. Lovely sunny weather and looking forward to a nice chat. You see, is it really sunny? Because it's miserable down here. It is. It's been very nice. It kind of went through a, uh, a bit of rain earlier on, but no, it's been lovely here. East Coast and all that makes a difference. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of the East Coast. Mary, how are you? <laughs> I mean, I think we've established that I'm hungover to fuck, so my contribution to this podcast is going to be the bare minimum. <laughs> Why break the habit of a lifetime? So, <laughs> oh, on to that, yeah, I'm back, bitches. In tonight's <laughs> podcast, we are going to be discussing Shazam, which has just been recently released on DVD, Blu-ray, home video, however you watch stuff in the house. And John's got you shut open again, and I'm... <laughs> He's getting in the mood, he's thinking Zachary Levi, he's getting aroused, he's getting the chest out. Yeah, and if you wonder why I used the word again there, it was prior to recording, John was, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to lie, he was stripping off. Yeah. He's into the Free the Nipple campaign, yep. So, we're going to discuss Shazam, directed by David F. Sandberg. It was the latest instalment in the DCEU. Starring Zachary Levi, it tells a story of a young child, Billy Batson, who develops superpowers and in a little similar story to the film Big, that you might be familiar with, he grows from a teenage kid into a Superman-style superhero. The problem is, he's still a kid in his mind and at heart, and he's got a lot of lessons to learn when it comes to being a superhero. I love this film when I went to see it. I thought it was so much fun. It was really, really funny. Mary, I believe you have an opinion on this film. 
I mean, I have an opinion on Zachary Levi, but that's kind of um, probably not suitable for the podcast, given that John's already got a nipple out. Um, I absolutely love this. I think it's case in point that you don't have to do superhero films very seriously all the time in order for them to be a success and for them to be enjoyable. I thought there was lots of lovely nods to, as you said, like Big and even Rocky, because they do the sort of training session when he's learning to use the, the lightning. Um, and I thought that the performances were absolutely great. Obviously, Zachary Levi was just having a good time playing the, the superhero who's essentially just a big kid. And Jack Dylan Grazer playing Freddie Freeman was really fantastic as well. Of course, Mark Strong playing the villain. You can't beat a bit of Mark Strong snarling and being that sort of classic English bad guy on screen. There were so many laugh out loud moments, really well-rounded characters and just good fun. It was pure escapism and as I said, it's just case in point that you don't have to do The Dark Knight every time in order to have a really well-made superhero film. John, you enjoy that, I believe, yeah? Yeah, I thought it was a, another fantastic entry into the DC universe. They seem to be on a bit of a run just now with uh, obviously doing the likes of Wonder Woman and Aquaman, and this followed on quite nicely from it. I like the way at the start of the film that it started off with a very dark tone. It was very onerous, very, uh, very introspective, I'll say. But yeah, you get introduced to the, the antagonist first, which is a, a kind of a, a trope that you get with a lot of superhero films these days. And then once that's all finished, it just goes, nah, I'm not going to do that. Let's just have fun. And it's really, really upbeat from there. The music changes. It gets very light. You're introduced to Billy Batson in the very opening scene where he steals a policeman's lunch, of all things. I'll back you up on Zachary Levi. I thought he was fantastic. He plays a great teenager. He's really good in that role. I also thought that Mark Strong was excellent. And it was all the things about the film. Like uh, there was a sequence where uh, it was him and Freddie and they were discussing what his superhero name was going to be. Now, Freddie as a character, as a sort of, he's almost like a, a spirit guide because he deals with, uh, he knows about all the lore of Superman and uh, obviously Batman and everybody sort of surrounding in the DC universe. So that's a kind of a way into DC universe as well, but he knows about all this stuff, but he deliberately starts calling him like Captain Sparkle Fingers and things like that. <laughs> Which was just know, and Thundercrack. <laughs> was just, Thundercrack was just my favourite because uh, Shazam just turns around and goes, dude, what? come on, you know, you can't do that. <laughs> I just thought, yeah, it was splendid and it was fun and it was exactly what you, you need from a film, especially one that's not trying to continue a universe. There's a moment in the film as well where I've never heard so many people in the cinema choke on whatever they were eating and drinking. It's when the demon Honsu, apologies for the pronunciation, character says, put your hand on my staff and say my name. <laughs> I think everyone just about buckled. It was brilliant and it was there were so many wee one-liners um, and little moments like that when I think towards the end when Zachary Levi and Mark Strong's characters are having a sort of squeeze off but they're quite far apart and instead of you know he's Mark Strong's giving this really dramatic villain speech and that's quite a common trope in superhero films but instead of actually like responding to you know Zachary Levi's like what I, I can't hear you you're too far away I'm sorry I'm sure this is really important and dramatic and evil but you're too far away it was just really turning all the sort of tropes of superhero films on their head and making them a bit more silly and light-hearted 
Yeah, I mean, I didn't know all too much about Shazam when the film first got announced. I have read little of the character in the comics. Back when I did read them in the comics, it was still called Captain Marvel. Yep. And um, when the film got announced, all I really knew that The Rock was attached to it. But nobody knew if he was going to be playing, it's not like Captain Marvel, sorry, uh, Shazam or mm-hmm. Black Adam, which is uh, one of his main villain, villains who... This isn't a spoiler, but he's not introduced in this film. So it turns out The Rock will be playing Black Adam in a film still to be made. And this was announced years ago before this film was even in production, which shows you that kind of like crazy ambition that DC, that Warner Bros. has with DCEU. Not dissimilar to Marvel, to be fair, except Marvel have kind of got some good faith banked. With this film, though, as much as I did really enjoy it, I loved it, thought it was great, thought it was a lot of fun. It's not my favourite DCEU film, and interestingly enough, for a franchise that is constantly ridiculed and berated by um, critics, this is the lowest grossing entry. Is it? Yep. So when a lot of critics were saying stuff like, this is a great film, it's a nice breath of fresh air, it's what DC should be doing, not according to the bank balance. I'm surprised at that. No, they've made an extraordinary amount of money off of the previous films. It's even though they've been uh, critically panned, they just made so much cash off of them. That's why they were able to kind of continue. Because if you think about it, there's been a few occasions, especially with uh, the MCU, where if a film wasn't successful, it could have spelt real problems for them. Thinking along the lines of maybe Guardians of the Galaxy or Iron Man Two, for instance, if they didn't reach those heights. But with DC, they seem to have this built-in fan base that will go and see whatever comes out on screen. This film is still quite dark tonally. It still has that Snyder vision kind of tint to it, you know. But yeah, it's the whole theme of like the idea that you know envy is the strongest of all of Mark Strong's um, demons or whatever they are. Um, an idea that you know envy can consume you, and how you should you know brace yourself for for that as an adult. That is quite a, a dark message, and amongst yeah. all the kind of fun and nonsense. And there's a scene that this isn't a spoiler, but I'll speak about it vaguely so that people that have seen it will know the scene. But when Mark Strong takes his uh, little demon emotions into the boardroom, and that yep. scene is brutal. Yeah, absolutely mm-hmm. brutal. And that's one of the things I like about DC is I'm not afraid to do stuff like that in spite of critics and their opinions. They'll still, they're still trying to do that thing. It's a bit different from Marvel. The people could argue that this is them trying to kind of go more kind of Marvel route and more kind of family-friendly. It's still, as you said, they're quite a dark film in many, many ways. But the character lends himself to the tone. It's not DCU taking the character Shazam and going, right, this is a brutal, dark, batman brutal character. Let's make him fun. They've picked a character like that and made a film run about. And as you're saying, John, it's, this is more of a standalone film than it is. It's still part of the extended universe. It does make reference to all superheroes. The end credits, especially, you know, they're kind of animated Wonder Woman and stuff. That's, that's really, really funny. But it does stand alone, much in the way Aquaman did. And Wonder Woman, to be fair. Yeah, totally, yes. And yeah, as you say, Zachary Levi is absolutely outstanding in the role. I um, I think I said he was a big ride. I didn't actually mention his accent. <laughs> <laughs> he's very likable. He's very charismatic. He's got a 
it's great allure to him uh, beyond his obvious talents that Mary seems to be Talents, is that word we're going for? Yeah, sure. He looks like he smells good, doesn't he? <laughs> he just looks like he could sniff his neck and it would be amazing. I didn't actually know much of, 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 at all about Zachary Levi before this. Did you guys? Well, he was Flynn Rider in Tangled, and he's in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but I haven't seen Chuck, which he stars in. I watched Chuck when it was on at the time, and it was really good. It's it's not a, a dissimilar character, to be honest. He's a, an IT help guy, so I was naturally tuned into <laughs> uh, liking something like that anyway. But it's very funny as well, and it shows his, his real sort of comedic chops. It's it's a good series. It kind of tailed off. I think it was like four series of it, and it kind of tailed off towards the end because there's only so many episodes you can have of him being an IT guy and a spy at the same time. So. Uh, it was it was good, uh, and it was a good way in. But yeah, marvelous Mrs. Maisel kind of showed off his acting chops a bit as well. I thought it was very good in that. It was a very sort of subtle role. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, there was an undertone of humour and everything to it, but it uh, showed off uh, a different side of himself. But even in that, he was built like a brick shit house as well. He's re- he was really bulked up in that, whereas in Chuck he was really skinny and weedy. Oh yeah, he's a total glow up, and I think like he came out and said he was not annoyed, but you know people were suggesting that his muscles for Shazam were just the suit, and he was like, no, no, I refer you to you know scenes in Marvelous Mrs. Maisel or even his own Instagram where he sort of documented his kind of fitness journey. Um, it's definitely all him. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting yeah. to say that because we actually look at him in the film, it, and this will be a, uh, a deliberate aesthetic uh, reason. It does look like a muscle suit. Compared to, let's say, like uh, Ben Affleck as Batman or Henry Cavill Superman, it does look like he's wearing some kind of like enhanced suit. But I think that's made deliberate because of the the comical nature of the character as well. Yeah, I kind of thought that was kind of part of the joke. Yeah, because he's obviously really a teenage boy, and it I, I kind of felt that was like part of the in joke of like, oh, well, you just buy like a buy inflatable muscles or something like that. Yeah, it's like the two kids and each other's shoulders with the the coat. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly yeah. that. Yeah. Speaking of good acting chops, though, his villain, as we mentioned, is Mark Strong in the opposing role, who again just looks like he's having so much fun in the role. He just doesn't know how to have a bad performance. To be perfectly honest, I've seen him in so many films, and he's always good. What I like about Mark Strong is the choices they makes as well, because he could be quite easily typecast as a villain, and you kind of look at a film that he's in or a television program, and you think, oh, is he the bad guy here? So you never really know because of the choices he makes. Sometimes he's good, sometimes he's bad, but he's very, very watchable, really is. Yeah, I think the problem is well, when you see him in something and you don't know if he's a bad guy, you just assume he is, as you're saying. But that's because he's such a convincing bad guy. Like anything I watch him in, I think, he's going he's to be the bad guy. He's going to turn mm-hmm. at some point. He's, he's going to be the villain, you know, and it's like... He's not. I don't think he's typecast as a villain, though. As you say, John, it's, I don't think he's as typecast. He's just such a convincing villain. I like to see him as the villain. I will it in his roles, and you get plenty of bad guy stuff from him here. He's he's great. Oh yeah, he absolutely purrs every line that he has, and it's that kind of slight snarl of the lip, and he he just does make an excellent villain. But Mark Strong, somebody that I've liked right back from like our friends in the north, and is it? 
Low, oh, was it Low Morning Sun, the one set in Edinburgh as well? He's a fantastic actor and he's made some really cool choices that I think have kind of deliberately kept him out of like big Hollywood features, but he's still a really bankable asset if we can talk about him in those terms. Yeah, he's a very solid actor. It's like if, I don't imagine anybody would, he's not a leading man, you don't see him in leading roles and stuff, but he is a kind of guy that if you see him opposite someone, you think, oh, Mark Strong's in that, my mm-hmm. interest is peaked. Like, I didn't know much about Zachary Levi. I knew he was in Chuck. I didn't watch it. That was about it. I was going to go and see this anyway, let's be honest. It's a superhero film. It's DC. I'm a total DC fanboy. Knowing Mark Strong's in it, it did pique my interest a little bit more. Absolutely. I just thought it was a great film, a sort of nice way to sort of kick off blockbuster season, as it were. All the criticism in me as a whole is that it did fall down that typical superhero rabbit hole in the third act big CGI villain piece and it just, I didn't think it really worked well here in the same way that Wonder Woman didn't really work and uh, the film was really good up until then and then got quite genetic It's the, That's the problem that a lot of superhero films have, the, the third act, they have to put a spectacle on now if you look at previous two, Wonder Woman Aquaman, if you, you could probably say that the third act was probably the weakest in those films as well because it sort of fell back on the you know hitting big things or hitting imaginary things which doesn't really work and it's not really of any interest sometimes these films uh, can get away with it and i think shazam just about gets away with it because of the way that it tackles the uh, fighting the bad guy in the third act as you say we're not going to give anything away but it does something slightly different and it actually feels like more of a sort of proper ending to it but yeah it, it is a problem for all these films let's face it yeah i suppose you're right there actually because at least with shazam you've got a very human villain and mark strong even though he's surrounded by these seven deadly sins demons mm-hmm. he's still a very tangible and physical uh, punching bag yep absolutely i'm disappointed that zachary levi didn't get his kit off you could always watch the Shazam Triple X parody, which I'm sure somewhere <laughs> like. Well, that was something that uh, the character of Shazam says very early on. He says, you know, when he's asked, what can you do? And he says, I don't even know how to pee in this suit. You know, it's a typical, <laughs> a typical thing that a, a boy would think of. And that that was one of the, the biggest strengths for me. I thought the screenplay by Henry Gaden, uh, based on a story by him and Darren Lemke, it did really kind of capture that idea of what a teenage boy would be like with superpowers. He's going to be a bit of an op. He's going <laughs> to be a bit arrogant. The scene when he's like, uh, he's on the, the, the rocky steps, he's like, lightning in my hands. And he's getting money off people for doing tricks. You know, this is a world where superheroes exist. Yeah. You know, we have Aquaman, we have Wonder Woman, we have Superman, we have Batman. These people exist. People know of them. The Suicide Squad. The world has been saved many, many times. But still, he is still capitalising on this. Oh yeah, I'm so glad that one of us sang the lightning in my hands uh, thing because that is absolutely hysterical. What I also loved as well is the scene where they're blown up. Like he obviously discovers he can shoot lightning. They're throwing textbooks at him, and he's like, "Math, <laughs> social science," and he's just blowing them all up. My sister actually turned around to me. She is uh, a teenager, and she went, "That would be me." I was like, yeah, that's exactly what everyone would do. Just get rid of all their responsibilities first. Yeah, it goes to the strip club and things like that just because he can. <laughs> and he's buying beer. You know, it's just... It is a very good film. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind watching it again. I think, like, more, I found this with every DC film I've watched. I actually have enjoyed it more the second time, apart from Suicide Squad. 
Oh, I'm going to pass on that. I haven't seen it at all. It's okay. That's a whole other conversation. To it's be another podcast. If you're interested in us doing a DC and Marvel podcast, please let us know on the social medias. <laughs> How old do you sound on the social medias? I know. Yeah, sounds as old as me. <laughs> I know, but you've got that silver fox, open neck, 20 buttons and something <laughs> going on that somebody doesn't have. <laughs> Okay, so I think it's safe to say that I am a fan of this film and it's a recommend for me. John? Yeah, definitely. definitely. Mary, not just that because of Levi's package, but the film <laughs> general. Oh yeah, I've pre-ordered the Blu-ray. Buzzing. I loved it. Did you see that? Yeah, you electrocuted a bus and almost killed these people. And then I caught it! Um, I didn't really know much about the Shazam character. Obviously I'm going to go and see it. I didn't know much about Zachary Levi either. I was a fan of the director, David F. Sandberg, who previously made the horror films Lights Out and Annabelle Creation. Now, I think I thought Lights Out specifically was it was okay, it was good, it was based on a short film. You could tell it was a short film idea. It worked best. It just when you run it over ninety minutes, it got a bit kinda of tired. Annabelle Creation, I think, is probably the best horror films in the last ten years. And I was very, very intrigued to how it was gonna make Shazam and seeing the trailer. As didn't have any horror elements at all. Now we do mention that it's quite dark. Seeing the boardroom, for example, you can see where that kind of horror background comes into it. But this is an, another example of the trend of big studios taking independent directors and throwing them into multi-million-dollar blockbusters. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. The one I can think of it doesn't. Most famously. John, you know what I'm going to say? Um, well, there's so many to choose from. Oh, no, it would be Fantastic Four. Exactly, Fantastic yeah. Four. I was a massive, massive fan of the film Chronicle. Oh, Fantastic Four remake. Well, the most recent one, the most precise, 2015, is one of the worst films I think I've ever seen. It's atrocious. Now, I don't think that's entirely the director's fault, but it's a really bad film. There is good examples, though. And... We have selected three of our favourite directors who have made the jump seamlessly from independent film to thrown it in a blockbuster, usually a franchise, and done quite well. Now, if, that wasn't a, if you think that's a clumsy title for this next segment, that's why it's not been advertised on social media. So <laughs> we do apologise if we haven't got your thoughts and stuff like that. Now you know what this topic is, you can let us know after the fact. But Mary... You're up first, since you're hungover. Christ, honestly. So my first pick is just somebody that I absolutely love because I think he's very zany and quirky and has sort of seamlessly made that transition. So it's Taika Waititi. Obviously kind of famous for starting his career in Flight of the Concords and doing that sort of, you know, really quirky, off-the-wall style comedy. And he sort of slowly moved into sort of, you know, bigger and bigger projects. So I think, what we do in the shadows came next which is one of the funniest films i have ever watched the werewolves not swearwolves line will stay with me forever and from there he did the hunt for the wilder people which again is a really quite catchy like it's it's sam neil in it so it kind of he kind of started to get you know bigger and bigger casting kind of a sort of sad funny sort of again offbeat kind of drama comedy type thing 
And from there, he launched himself into Thor Ragnarok, which for me was one of the absolute standouts uh, in the last stage of Marvel. You know, you've got Immigrant Song, you've got Kate Blanchett as Hela with those gorgeous big dramatic horns. And it's so vibrant and full of colour. But everywhere you look, as much as it's a Marvel film, it's very much a Taika Waititi film. It's really stamped with his sort of personality and style of humour um, and, and visuals as well. Um, he obviously has a, a bit part in that as well as, as Korg, the guy who just can't organise a, a revolution. And he's fantastic. He's obviously signed up to direct the next Thor movie, which we'll see Natalie Portman pick up the the mantle. Um, and he's just great. I mean, for me, he can do no wrong. I mean, he's a snappy dresser who loves a pineapple shirt and just he really delivers on everything that he does. I love his sense of humour. He's a very, very clever guy. I really hope he can do no wrong because he signed up to do Akira and it actually looks like the project's going to go off the ground after three decades. And I am a massive fan of Akira. I'm a big fan of this director. I really hope. (laughs) I really hope it's a film that I deserve. Just me. (laughs) Just me for Thomas. Just for me. My first choice is Gareth Edwards started out as a visual artist uh, after qualifying from uni and he used those skills very well in the uh, 2010 film Monsters, which is a low-budget sort of sci-fi horror film where a journalist uh, does a favour to a very rich man and go and collect his uh, daughter from a quarantine zone in Central America where uh, these monsters, as they've been termed, have landed from outer space. It's a beautiful film. It's really well done. It's very, very low budget. The monsters of the film, you actually only see them for about five minutes. It's almost a a case of, you know, like there will be blood without any, you know, there's no blood in there will be blood. It's the same idea. The monsters only appear very briefly and it's a cracking movie. And from that, he got the chance to direct Godzilla, the 2014 adaptation of the classic Japanese sci-fi Let's Fear the Bomb movie it was a, a partial success i i would say it's a success because i really enjoyed the film obviously but i was very biased i like these type of films anyway he was able to uh, use his visual stylings and his visual language to great effect in the film when you saw the the initial trailer uh, when you saw the halo jump scene and i don't know if you're if you both remember that mm. it's a fantastic piece of filmmaking it just looks so good it's spectacular and it really made people want to actually see the film and i think because of that there was a certain amount of disappointment mainly because it focused on a human character that wasn't particularly charismatic and again there wasn't enough monsters in it for a lot of people which was obviously remedied in the, the film from this year uh, it was a good jump up, and obviously because of that as well, he was able to go on and do Rogue One, but that could be another podcast in itself again. Um, I wasn't the biggest fan of his Godzilla film, to be honest, for some of the reasons you kind of mentioned there. I do love Monsters, though. I think it's an absolutely incredible piece of filmmaking for especially how he made it. He do appreciate the film a lot more when we know the backstory behind it. Take that backstory away. If you just went, this is another indie-style film, you can really enjoy it. Because it's a very good film, it's a very good story. And I love Rogue One. I actually didn't realise, because I obviously wasn't paying attention, that it was the same director that had done all three. But Monsters is something I will now look at, because you've piqued my interest. It's really good. The sequel, not so much. Which I believe is available in the moviescramble.co.uk archives. 
Nice plug. Smooth. Well, just to be precise, in case we get uh, sued by any studios, not the movie, but a review. <laughs> I am going to go with Colin Trevorrow. His his feature debut with the low-budget indie comedy Safety Not Guaranteed, starring the absolutely amazing Aubrey Plaza. The film told the story of three magazine uh, reporters who respond to a classified ad placed by someone who's looking for a companion to go time-travelling with. I actually only seen this film recently. It's really nice. I was expecting more of a comedy. It's not. It's more of a romantic comedy in a lot of ways. And it's just a sweet film, you know, and it's quite sad in many ways. And it's kind of like a tragedy to, to Mark Duplass's character and things like that. And then after that, it gets signed up to do Jurassic World. Now, the idea of a Jurassic Park 4 has been developing hell for as, almost as long as Akira, basically. <laughs> you know, it's kind of one of those films that was always kind of teased, always kind of spoke about, but never did seem to go off the ground. He made this, and I think despite it getting, getting some mixed reviews, it made an absolute fortune. And it is a film that after you get past the hype and the expectation of a new Jurassic Park film, it is really good. It's a cracking spectacle. It's got some amazing action sequences, likeable characters, a great cast, funny scripts. And yeah, I think I think he pulled it off. I mean, he's, he's took over a franchise that had been languishing you know, and been killed, to be fair, off by Jurassic Park 3. No, I totally agree. I think that the it sort of brought Chris Pratt to my attention. Um in terms of his sort of acting capabilities and it was a really enjoyable again just a big monster movie like who doesn't like the thought of you know it's the classic sort of you know the t-rexes the velociraptors and i'm saying they're like much loved characters but you know what i mean there's a bit of nostalgia surrounding jurassic park yeah i mean i first seen the trailer for it and you had chris pratt talking to raptors and you see him in the motorbike with this kind of raptor army i'm like i don't know if i'm all in or not because in one hand this looks ridiculous and I'm a massive fan of the first Jurassic Park, and I'm just watching this going, Chris Pratt has a raptor army. <laughs> also, like, Chris Pratt has a raptor army. <laughs> this could be the greatest scene in cinema ever. It wasn't, but it was still good, and I enjoyed it. So I'm going to go for Paul Greengrass as my second choice, just because he's a, or was, a, a fellow journal. So he started out as a, a journalist and then sort of moved into making kind of made-for-TV movies about real life events more often than not and he sort of caught the attention of, of Hollywood or whatever you want to call it when he made Bloody Sunday for Granada TV sort of segmented his style for that kind of shaky cam which brought him into the Bourne films the Bourne films I think were they've obviously the books were written in like the 70s and I think that was something that was touted for a long time to sort of be the American James Bond type of thing and he really brought a new character to life like I think it's quite hard to launch a character that people are going to be invested in for a franchise but I feel like he did that with the Bourne films and obviously from there he went on to do United 93 which absolutely ruined me like it was a horrific cinema trip for obvious reasons one of the few cinema trips actually where I felt like everyone in the, the theatre was completely silent for the entire time it was absolutely just the worst sort of experience ever in a in a way but watching it was obviously thoroughly entertaining it was really well made most recently he has done captain phillips with tom hanks um, obviously telling the story of the man who's um 
ship was invaded by pirates, which gave way to that famous line, I'm the captain now. But I think he's, he's somebody who's had a really interesting career. You know, he's done the sort of research and fact-finding side of things as a, as a journalist and sort of made his way sort of naturally into documentaries, which then naturally led to sort of, you know, TV dramas of real-life events right up into these massive Hollywood blockbusters that he's, you know, quite clearly put his own stamp on. Like, he, he has quite a distinct style. And I think that if I heard that something was a Paul Greengrass movie, I'd, I'd be interested in it as well, just because I quite like the back catalogue. But I thought he was quite an interesting choice. He's had quite a nice sort of varied career. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the biggest. It's not that I don't like the Bourne films. It's just, I'm not. I'm not a big massive Bourne fan. But I do really like Paul Greengrass. Nineteen ninety three was a film I had zero interest in. How is he going to pull this off? And I was gripped yeah. that entire last half hour. And again, it sounds stupid, and you know what's going to happen. It's like watching Titanic, but I was absolutely gripped watching it, and I'm just like hands over my eyes, going, "Oh no, this it just made it so real." And I think because it was so soon as well, I kind of added to the impact of it. And it was just, uh, yeah, it was a brutal, brutal, but necessary watch, I think. For this one, I am going to go with James Gunn. Uh, obviously. <laughs> Not cancelled. <laughs> uncancelled. Uh, so obviously he started off uh, doing sort of trauma films, very low budget horror with dubious taste, let's say, which obviously got him into a bit of bother later on in his career when previous tweets and uh, jokes were taken in a different context to which they were probably originally aired. But his film just before he hit it big was a film called Super, which was a Rain Wilson pretend superhero It's a really good uh, movie. Film. It's a, it's an excellent movie. Uh, Rain Wilson is particularly good in it. He's a sort of a middle-aged man that has a bit of a crisis and starts dressing up in a sort of flash-type costume. Uh, his catchphrase is, shut up, crime. <laughs> and he goes out of his way to try and save people. And as you probably guess, it doesn't go particularly well. It's funny, but it's also kind of brutal as well. There's a, an awful lot of violence in it that just you don't expect you're sitting there watching and you go, whoa, what the hell happened there? <laughs> so from that, obviously, he got the nod from Marvel and went on the first Guardians of the Galaxy film. Now, at the time, obviously, Guardians of the Galaxy wasn't regarded as being a big film within the MCU. In fact, it was a bit of a risk. Most people didn't know the comics, didn't really know the characters. So he was basically given uh, a bit of room to manoeuvre and do what he wanted to do. And I mean, the the product speaks for itself. He kind of knocked it out of the park and he's set himself up with another two sequels and he's gone on and done a few things since then. Obviously, he did Brightburn as well. So he was involved in Brightburn. He was producing that. But yes, he's obviously hit the big time from there and it just showed that the lessons that he learned as a young filmmaker. He was able to bring that to the screen when he had the money and the, obviously the the backing of a major studio. I just think he's a fantastic director and the, the kind of thing that he does is just brilliant. There is a little Easter egg in Brightburn that suggests it's a shared universe with Super. Oh, all right, okay. Yeah, I won't say too much. It's right at the end, so I won't say anything else for people who haven't seen it, but that's not a spoiler, by the way, either. I mean, I've seen Super, I didn't even notice it. <laughs> you know, uh, I wasn't the biggest fan of Super, to be honest with you, but I agree with everything you said regarding Gardens of the Galaxy. Relatively unknown director, especially for that scale of film for a household name. Now everybody knows who James Gunn is. Yeah. 
and everybody knows who Groot is, things like that. So you, yeah. you can't get away from that, you know. It's he's obviously done something right. I am gonna go with Scott Derrickson. And the reason I picked Scott Derrickson as he kinda had two shots. He made his feature film debut with Hellraiser Inferno, which was straight to video. Now, this was the first Hellraiser film in the franchise to go straight to video. It has not been the last. <laughs> this was the fifth one. To be fair, though, it's actually not a bad film. It's pretty good for what it is. It's a low-budget horror movie. It is pretty good. And you can tell this guy's got a bit of talent here by the camera. He followed that up with The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which I think is a cracking film. That is a really good film. Yeah. It's uh, one part horror, one part courtroom drama, and it manages to murder two styles very well. Got a call up for the big leagues with the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still, which is terrible. Even the Keanu Reeves' biggest fans can't really defend that one. <laughs> so it was back to low budget horrors for him, where he did Sinister, followed up by Deliverers from Evil, for Marvel to come knocking for Doctor Strange. Now, Doctor Strange is arguably a bigger commodity than say the Guardians of the Galaxy he's more well known but probably not that well known people might recognise the name but do they recognise the character do they know much about him despite being a very under the radar hit Doctor Strange is an absolutely uh, fantastic film it's visually incredible it just looks amazing Cumberbatch is brilliant and the whole cast Tilda Swinton how this film has not got a sequel before now is baffling to me. I know it's getting it's getting one. I know it's been announced recently. This should have had a sequel years ago, in my opinion, or at least one announced. One of the most underrated films in the MCU, in my opinion. Absolutely. It was like Inception meets the MCU. I thought it was incredible. I thought Mads Mikkelsen was a brilliant villain. And I just, I really enjoyed the way they explored the character and how he sort of slots into things. And I am bursting for the multiverse of madness. I can't wait. I thought it was a great film. Yeah, I very rarely go and see 3D films if I can avoid it because I don't think the cinemas here are the best for 3D films. That was one film I came out of thinking, I wish I went to see that in 3D. I don't go and see 3D films because I already have to wear glasses for the cinema and wearing two pairs of glasses just makes me look like a loser. Tash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought it was a fantastic movie. As you say, it was visually a spectacle, and you, you can't really beat having a bit of Benedict Cumberbatch on screen. Let's face it; it's difficult to single it out as far as like sort of MCU films go. But it tried to do something a little bit different, and obviously introduced certain Eastern elements with Western actors sometimes, but uh, it still came across very well. And yes, a sequel should have been announced, but I think the reason they didn't uh, do the sequel thing was because there was so many films already on the slate. And I think the way that Marvel operate is if they're bringing a new character in and it doesn't do particularly well, they're not going to announce something straight up. They're going to wait. And obviously Doctor Strange played a big part in Infinity War and Endgame. Uh, So he was still very much part of everybody's sort of uh, collective consciousness. So, you know, it might be good that they, they didn't try to rush one through and obviously just decided, well, we'll do that as part of phase four. I think their Slate and Multiverse of Madness is the first Marvel horror film. Ah, excellent. 
So Mr. Derrickson will be very well placed for that then. Well, that's exactly what I was thinking. I'm really looking yeah, forward to yeah. it. I mean, I don't know if there's any Hellraiser fans out there. I'd recommend the fifth one. Okay, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> my last choice, again, I feel like I've gone for really obvious ones compared to you guys. My last choice is uh, David Lynch, who I think despite the fact that he's had massive successes, does still have that kind of indie feel to him. He is kind of... He's not mainstream anyway. So obviously he kind of first got noticed with Eraserhead, which is this, you know, black and white, sort of moody, kind of offbeat horror type thing, which has become a bit of a cult classic. And then from there, moved on to the black and white, The Elephant Man. And The Elephant Man always strikes me as something that's super big budget, but apparently I think it was only made for, you know, $5 million or whatever. So it wasn't at the time and has one of the most endearing John Hurt performances in it. And then apparently after that, he... Or sorry, not after that, rather. He was, at the time, offered the opportunity to direct Return of the Jedi. So let's all take a moment there to pause and think about what a David Lynch Return of the Jedi might look like. Um, But he turned it down, obviously, to do Dune, which was a commercial flop, but has now been remade with Timothy Chalamet, amongst others. And he's obviously gone on to, you know, Twin Peaks, the series, and the the film Fire Walk With Me, Blue Velvet, which is up there with one of my favourite all-time weirdo films. I remember one time watching it at home, and my mum came in just as the In Dreams sequence came on. She was like, are you watching porn? <laughs> it's two o'clock in the afternoon, so probably not. And obviously, he's done, you know, Mulholland Drive, which again is a really sort of, his films just, you know, they get under your skin and they really make you think. But he's somebody that, you know, for all the kind of success that he has, he does have that kind of flavour of the indie auteur about him. He's never quite crossed over into the mainstream, but, you know, I think he's fantastic. And honestly, the idea of a David Lynch Star Wars movie just tickles me so much. Yeah, almost as much as a Quentin Tarantino Star Trek movie for me. <laughs> <laughs> My last choice is the Wachowskis. They started off in Hollywood as screenwriters. They wrote the screenplay for the film Assassins, which eventually became a Sylvester Stallone, Antonio Banderas gig, which wasn't particularly good, but I think their original script was changed to quite a large extent. From there, obviously, they developed the idea for The Matrix and they'd actually sold the idea of The Matrix to Warner Brothers, but Warners were a bit dubious about them insisting, about them actually directing the film and taking the the sort of vision forward, considering they were going to be spending something like, I think it was about 80, 90 million dollars they were going to be spending on it. So what they asked them to do was to do a low budget film to just show that they could actually do the piece of work. And what they come up with was Bound, uh, an erotic film noir with uh, Gina Geshwan, Jennifer Tilly. And it's a very tight, very erotic, uh, and it's a very good film as well. Can and it's short. Erotic. <laughs> Maybe undo that button again. <laughs> You're obsessed. We can have a private chat later. <laughs> Christ. So, oh, you guys are listening or missing out in this. As it's yeah. freaking up all this episode. Just checking to make sure how many buttons I've actually got undone. Uh, so yes, they. We can cut all this out. No, we're keeping it in. We're keeping it in. That's what she said. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, from the success or the 
the success of Bound, they were able to go on and deliver what has become The Matrix and the, the two mega successful follow-ups. Basically launched their careers and prove to just about everybody that they could actually uh, go on and they, they knew how to deal with money, they knew how to deal with actors and they basically knew how to put a product out on the screen that people wanted to see. And their career since then has been a little patchy, let's say. They've had some good ones and some bad ones. I'm a bit of a speed racer apologist. I think that's a fantastic movie. Saw that in uh, the IMAX and I just loved every single minute of it. So it's good good memories for me as well for that film. Uh, I didn't like some of their output after that to the same extent. Uh, it was Jupiter, Jupiter Ascending, which I thought was just a bit silly. But... It certainly put them on the map, and I think this is worthy of including in my list. Absolutely. Okay. Agree. It's a very good choice. Thomas, your last choice. I'm going to go for arguably my favourite director and the man who made, in my opinion, which therefore means fact, the greatest <laughs> film ever made in Steven Spielberg. I'm mean, not going to argue. No, this this is a guy who was plucked from virtual obscurity after making a couple of films and given Jaws to make. Now, I don't think anybody really knew that Jaws was going to become the absolute like blockbuster monster that it was. This is a guy who made a TV movie called Jewel, which is very good. Nice wee kind of thriller, stroke horror, depending on what kind of gaze you watch it with. Followed up with Sugarland Express, which I believe was his first theatrical film, Technically, his second theatrical film then was Jaws, and this is a guy who's still in his 20s. They gave him, they gave him millions. They gave him this, this uh, massive summer movie to direct, and everything just goes wrong. <laughs> it goes notoriously over budget. The actors are drunk on set. <laughs> the special effects fail. People are arguing. They're actually rewriting the script on set. You know, if you hear about that now, for example, if they're like us, oh, they're bringing the uh, Man of Steel 5, the films and the production's in trouble, they're rewriting the script on set. This is the kind of stuff that happened in George. Everything that could have went wrong went wrong, and he still managed to put it all together and make what is considered one of the greatest films of all time. It was a highest grossing film for the time as well, and it's considered the first summer blockbuster movie. This is a guy who is known for the summer blockbuster films like E.T., Jurassic Park, but can also jump back to his kind of industrial roots with, granted he's got a massive cast, but Catch Me If You Can is a very low-key film. Schindler's List, you know, it can flip between these massive blockbuster movies to these small-scale ones with complete ease. Yeah. And Schindler's List, I think, shows a real talent as well, and that it was, it was something unlike his entire back catalogue at that point, and there's nothing that he's really done since that's like it as well, just in terms of the, obviously the way it's shot and the, the visuals, it's one of my favourite films of all time actually, and the thing is, it, it almost feels kind of like a, a low budget indie, I th- it doesn't have a blockbuster feel about it, but yeah, no, he's, I mean, he's, he's one of the best, isn't he, if not the best, so good choice. Yeah, an interesting thing with Schindler's List, it came out in the same year as Jurassic Park, yeah, that's right. What, 93? Is that? 93, yeah. So yeah. it's like a kind of case he's flicking between these two films. In the same year, he's like, here's what I can do. Yeah. With apparent ease. Now, I'm not saying it was, obviously, because I film on Shizzle's list being so personal to him. Must have been very difficult to make. But as you said, there, Mary, it's got this very kind of indie feel to it. Compare that to Jurassic Park. 
which revolutionised special effects. Yeah. You know, and still stands to this day as a film. Like, there's none of the effects in that. And I have great love for Jaws, um, but the effects are a wee bit dated. But you watch the original Jurassic Park and the effects to this day completely stand up. Exactly. I mean, this, this is also a director that a lot of people like to kind of try and pigeonhole as being the blockbuster guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he's in our previous films. We've got West Side Story coming up. Before that, Ready Player One. Before that, The Post. Before mm-hmm. that, The BFG. He's just so versatile in his styles. Well, technically, the post came between the beginning and the end of Ready Player One. They did principal photography in Ready Player One. They took it had to take so long with the post-production the special effects. He did the post from beginning to end and then went back uh, and finished off Ready Player One in between times. That's same sort of idea as I'm doing Jurassic Park and Schindler's List in the same year. It just showed how quickly you can actually turn around a project. That's incredible. I know. Yes. And this is also the guy as well that went and did Indiana Jones. Come on. <laughs> you know, are you going to sing the music to that as well? I, no. <laughs> <laughs> I might just get, uh, get the hat and whip out though. I mean, whatever's in your bedroom is your business. Oh, that's not just my business. <laughs> with a car's right. <laughs> hands. Lightning with my hands. So I think we've pretty much knocked another podcast out of the park. Obviously, look at us, we're successful uh, film journals. Is there anything else you guys <laughs> want to, to touch on, before, not each other, before we, before we wrap up? <laughs> yeah, there was a, a piece in The Guardian the other day about the film Hobbs and Shaw, uh, where it was reported that no actor basically loses a fight in the film and it's actually down to contractual reasons. The The contracts state that neither of them can basically lose face in any way. They have to basically trade the same number of punches and give as good as it gets. Now, this isn't unique to this film. It's part of the Fast and Furious franchise. There's been previous reports with the likes of Vin Diesel having somebody on set during a fight to make sure that if some somebody hits him six times that he is able to get the choreographer to come in and make sure that he gives as good as he gets i just think this is it's it's strange but it's also really really worrying because you kind of get an idea that the rock is kind of a reasonable guy he's got a very good public uh, persona and for him to be this sort of petty it's really disappointing isn't it and to me it just has you know small penis syndrome written all over it like if your masculinity or your image is so fragile that you have to count the number of punches i mean the the fight choreographers must be just like for fuck's sake i was going to say regards to like often show specifically is uh, have you seen it yet not yet no i went to see it the weekend and you can actually believe that's not so much, you believe it's almost like method acting in a sense because of the way the characters compete in the film. There's even like scenes where they're like uh, taking out like two separate groups of bad guys and stuff, and they're kind of like uh, trying to outdo each other mm-hmm. about who can beat up the most people and stuff like that. But it is a bit kind of sad, isn't it? I mean, if it's if, if it's like a joke type thing, kind of tongue in cheek. I don't get the impression that it is. <laughs> you know, but if the idea that they're sitting like, no, 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 
I must batter more people than you in this film because of whatever reason. Can you imagine if The Rock actually said that? I must batter more people than you. <laughs> yeah. Well, apparently, even like uh, there's, they have to have the same number of punches thrown, even if they're fighting other people, so that it all evens out. But you've you've got to remember, there's there's history within Fast and Furious sort of Vin Diesel on The Rock. Basically, Hobbs and Shaw was created because The Rock didn't want to appear on screen with Vin Diesel, and they wanted to make sure that the franchise went forward. Now, the new Fast and Furious film supposedly won't feature any of The Rock at all, which is a bit sad, because they just don't get on. Uh, there's obviously been a very public spat in Instagram with them over the years. He can be as petty as anybody, by the looks of things, and it's to the detriment of the the film. I know they're they're not exactly the most serious. They're not they're not regarded as Spielberg prestige productions or anything. <laughs> but they're fun. But this kind of takes away from it a wee bit. It's, it's it's sad. It really is. See if this is the closest the rock gets to being cancelled. I'm pretty cool with that. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> Sex scandal. Nah, he's a bit petty. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> petty is in like he labels his lunch in the fridge at work. I mean that's. Yeah, it's disappointing, particularly from The Rock, because you do kind of feel like he has that kind of nice guy public image. And it'd be interesting to see then, as a result of, you know, these kind of contracts being revealed, you know, does Tom Cruise have this for the Mission Impossibles? Does John, sorry, does Keanu Reeves have it for John Wick? It'd be interesting to see if there are other kind of action stars who have that written into their their contracts. It would be kind of interesting to find out, because it's sort of a... To me, it just reeks of, you know, fragile masculinity, but I, I don't really want to say too much about that, given that I'm the only uh, female present here. No, I mean, I think you've got a fair point. Of it, and you, I wouldn't be surprised if there's, like, historical contracts in films. Was um, it not? Was it in, Was it Tom Cruise? Was it in, in fact, I think it was Top Gun. He would always, it was like, I don't know if it was in his contract right enough, but he would always be standing on a pavement or something so that Kelly McGillis would look shorter than him, which is not possible because she's like 60 feet tall to his 5 feet tall. But there was a thing about that. He was always having to be on a raised platform in comparison to her, obviously because of the, the height difference. Yeah, that was widely reported at the time. I think, and I think he learned lessons from that because he's always cast against females, especially that are smaller than him or roughly the same height, yeah, which is kind of difficult. Yeah, it is. And especially, like, I mean, God, look at his wedding pictures to Katie Holmes. Like, bitches crouching half a foot because, <laughs> you know, she's a giant compared to him. Do you know, it, stuff like that, I, I feel it kind of, like, takes away the magic a little bit. Like, especially for fight sequences, you know, they're supposed to be kind of fun, not fun, but enjoyable and sort of, you know, really cinematic. And to think that it comes down to, you know, ratios of punches, yeah, it just, yeah, yeah sad, I think, is the word. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's three post-credit scenes in this film and uh, I sat through them all I didn't see fight puncher count, uh, punch counter in uh, any of the credits you know although, maybe that's not a job title yet although I could swear both of them do lose a fight in that film ah but against each other? no when they fight Idris Elba in the beginning ah but that's that's plot that's setting up plot it doesn't matter if it's yeah, the bad guys they're not going to they have to lose the first fight they have to lose the first fight against the bad guy in order to yeah, come to back stronger. Yeah. I, I don't, yeah. I don't, that, that's a plot device. That's not a contractual thing. I don't think the Rock said to the screenwriter, I know you've planned to help me die at the end of this film. Don't. 
<laughs> if you know what's good for you. And the screenwriter's like, you know when I, I run for president, I'll remember that you killed me off in this franchise. I was I was planning to have either self or batter both of you and just have the bad guy one. How's that for a fun family summer blockbuster movie? You know, I want my contract to say that I don't lose this fight. So, also, I'm not saying these things aren't possibly true, but how much you take a pinch of salt as well. You know, publicity is publicity. If we can get something in the paper for a film, then when you do it, no matter how big the film is, it can always be bigger. Yeah, it's very true. And then we're talking about it, so we're just spreading the word even further with our many twos or threes of fans out there. Cartman wants to go and see it now to actually try and keep some sort of tally of punches. The film itself, though, I, I was underwhelmed by it. I think it tries too hard to be the film as it wants to be. Mm-hmm. And I was a bit like, yeah, I enjoyed it, but it's, it's no Fast and the Furious 5. <laughs> mm. I just like films with 5 in the title. <laughs> I know, this is yeah. <laughs> Well, if that is us for another successful, outstanding, award-winning, soon-to-be number one in iTunes... <laughs> Podcast. Yeah, it's in my contract that I have to be part of something decent. Do you know what's actually really interesting? Because uh, John faxed me his contract earlier and said he has to get this just a wee bit more airtime than you. That yeah. sounds about right. Yeah, he had to, he does have the better hair, in fairness. Yeah, and equal yeah. numbers of A's and ums, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> he also insists that when I do the audio pod, I put a thumbnail of John <laughs> <laughs> with the shirt open. It's not for content, it's just for that thumbnail. Oh, guys, I'm so glad all the gang's back together. But as I said at the start of this podcast, I'm really hungover. So I'm going to go and get some pizza. It's been lovely talking to you guys. I need to go and die in a corner. That's all for us. You can, again, as usual, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Movie Scramble. Please subscribe, leave a review, even if it's not good. I don't even care anymore. Just give us your comments. And check out our reviews, articles, opinion pieces, and all sorts of other fun past podcast episodes. Pictures of John Weesh are open at moviescramble.co.uk. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You have bullet immunity! I'm bulletproof. <laughs> you're dead. Sorry about your window, but nice. you're welcome for not getting robbed. Oh, hey, what's up? I'm a superhero.